John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 106.pr2105, certificate number 47159. Beanie Babies. So what is it about the Beanie Babes that's sending Americans into a spending frenzy? They just became crazy about them in, air, in uh, the United States because they were an inexpensive item you could pick up at the mall for your child. And now they've become collector's items. <laughs> Yesterday you texted me a picture of a Russian nesting doll that had as, as its largest and highest level uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. Yes. And you said, do you want this? And I texted you back a picture of... You said, I'll put it on my... Co- I'll add it to my collection. <laughs> I had a collection of, of alternative Russian nesting dolls. Including one that goes out to Putin. Yeah. Um, so Gorbachev would be would be a, you know one of the smaller internal it would be a step backwards for nesting you. dolls and it made me realize so i asked you you can't possibly be prepared to get rid of this uh, this wonderful russian nesting doll are you purging and you said what uh that i just found it in the garage with some christmas decorations and i hadn't seen it in 20 years yeah, but you said that you had bought it personally in Russia. In Moscow. During a period when... 92. Yeah. It's um, it's chronological, except that for some reason Gorbachev is on the outside and then Yeltsin is between Gorbachev and Brezhnev, confusingly. Yeah, right. Well, but I, I think it's because Gorbachev's more of a... More famous. Bigger seller. Who would want Yeltsin on the outside anyway? Yeah, he, you know, he'd freeze to death immediately. It's <laughs> all those blood vessels so close to the surface. <laughs> um, you know, I did, I actually, well, first of all, I went all the way through it and opened it up and I, I had misremembered how far back does I it thought go? it went Lenin to Marx, but it actually goes Lenin to Peter the great to Catherine the great to Ivan the terrible to a little teeny tiny Ivan the great. Really? It's got like 10 or 11 layers. And at that moment I decided I'm, I don't think I'm going to give this to John. No, I think I might bring it this. today. So that seems kind of lame. I think I might be like a Russian giver. Because You're a Russian giver. Now that I had opened it all, that's a little racist, John. Yeah. Now that I had opened it all the way, I thought, maybe I do want to keep this. And John's sucks. got a whole shelf of them. No, I don't. I, I, I'm he missing that particular one. He doesn't need this one. Boo. I have to say, it was a really popular street merchant item in Russia in the early 90s. And I looked at a lot of them before I settled on this one. It's pretty good of its kind. I was going to say that it wasn't just that you had it, but that you had a, you had a story connected to it. A story that... 
goes all the way back to a visit to Russia you made in 1992 when you were sh- surely just a child. I was just a wee bairn. Uh, it was a high school kind of a study abroad thing that my school did. And, you know, we brought some Levi's and George Michael tapes for our host family. Oh, isn't that and nice? That and was, they bought a new dacha. That was the currency of the time. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Maybe some sexy pictures of Michael J. Fox. And did they did they give you a lada that you then pushed through the streets of Prague? They gave us some tea. They gave us some yeah. overly sweetened tea. Yeah. And uh, that's and, the currency of the world. Outside of the United States, overly sweetened tea is the currency. And we went and bought the only two kinds of souvenirs available, which were Russian nesting dolls made up to look like uh, Soviet general secretaries and surplus military uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> Hats with the red star and right. jackets with epaulets and so forth. All, all made for the for the tourist market. Probably. Yeah. I don't think anyone in the Red Army ever wore any of this stuff. But you know, I got it for for Levi's and a and a, a crowded house tape. Sure, so I, I was pretty happy. <laughs> um, well, if you ever, I think I should I should maybe pitch this out to the futurelings and say, do you think that Ken should be allowed to offer me this nesting doll and then let's have renege. two let's have two different. Um, not toll-free numbers. What are those pay numbers that they used to have? Two different 900 numbers. And you can It'll call one and say, cents. I should give John my Gorbachev nesting doll. And one that says, no, Ken, you earned that. You keep that Gorbachev nesting doll. You should put, you should put up a poll on our Patreon. That's definitely one of, the, one of the things that you could do. And then we'll see. I think the futurelings will agree that having offered it to me, you can't then take it back, especially not without saying anything until I brought it up on this episode. I was going to talk to you about it before I left, but you called me on it on the air, mm-hmm. which I don't know. That's kind of bad form. I'm not John. so sure. But you are a collector of things. Your office is a busy hive of, of tchotchkes and bits you, and bobs. You always make it seem like my office is just nonstop anime kind, statuettes. kind of is. It absolutely is not. <laughs> I was looking the other day because I was trying to find, if I keep this, is there a good place to put, to put Gorbachev? And there wasn't room for all your anime figurines. I had to move my Emmy to the other side of the fireplace. Oh, my God. Wait a minute. Emmy? Oh, right. Your <laughs> Emmy. Yeah, your... <laughs> Scare quotes, Emmy. Asterisk, daytime <laughs> Emmy. <laughs> but, but, you, in, but in doing so, I did kind of look around and I was like, there's like one Gumby and one Totoro in this whole room. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. It's not a collectible paradise, I'm afraid. And a five-foot-tall Saturn V Lego rocket. <laughs> <laughs> there is a tall Lego rocket, I have to admit. and a Among uh, other Lego things. And a Lego Queer Eye set that I haven't even built yet. Right. So who knows what the Lego Queer Eye room looks like. Plus not, the key to the me. city of like five Midwestern, like l- very local burgs. So many crossword trophies. There's a lot of weird tchotchkes for sure. But you have a you have an enormous library of comic books, but it seems like you're much more interested in the collected omnibuy of a of a comic run rather than collecting the actual vintage like comic in I've plastic still, bags. I still got boxes out in the garage with a bunch of old Spider-Man and Batman comics for sure. But that are worth money? Mm, some of them. I was very surprised. The other day I was I was I was looking for something else. And I found a comic book that had the first appearance of Harley Quinn. No, I want to say, and I don't know what 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 is that? What My ten year old daughter listed Harley Quinn as one of her uh, one of her preferred DC comic characters, and I you know I was so I've been very appalled the last week as my daughter 
started to describe to me the difference between the DC and Marvel worlds. And I was like, was she, no, no, no. See, I'd only be, I'd only be mad if she was wrong. You're, you're mad that she actually has a take. I'm mad that she has a take. I'm like, how did this get in? How did this seep into the water? Like I've done everything I can to, to make it so that you can live in a world free of having an opinion. You just want to protect your kids. They yeah. come out of the womb so defenseless and you like, you should never know the different colors of kryptonite. Yeah, she you shouldn't said, have to, sweet thing. She said to me that Superman was boring. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know what, I why do you have a feeling about this? She was like, Spidey, on the other hand. So, uh, yeah, Harley Quinn, you've got a Harley Quinn comic, eh? That's worth cash? Here's somebody trying to sell one for like three or $4,000. I mean, I'm sure this is in much nicer certified shape than mine. Well, but this but is... But I was just surprised that in my garage, unbeknownst to me, is some comic I bought in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, for a dollar, but you have you've qualified it exactly right. Someone is trying to sell it for three thousand dollars now. Whether or not they can, whether or not they can get it, is anybody's guess. Yeah, but uh, you know, eBay has democratized a lot of that. You know, back in the day, you know, a used bookstore, any kind of vintage store that knew it had a rarity, could really put a premium price on it because they were competing with no one somebody would walk in and see a rare item and that maybe that's the only one they'll see in their lifetime right and they could pay an amount that is objectively too much whereas today every store is competing against every other store and your item may be rare but as long as i can find 15 stores that have it the invisible hand of the market is going to drag that price down to reality the other side of the um the other side of that ebay coin however is that it costs you nothing to put something up on eBay and price it however, right? I mean, I, I was going through some old rock posters and I found some beautiful screen printed posters of old rock shows. And I went online just to see if they were worth anything. And there were a couple of the posters I had that were uh, for sale online for $500, but they'd been sitting online for yeah. who knows how long, you know? And, and, um, there weren't others available, but and so I figured I could put them up there for four hundred dollars and undercut the market. the The person that had the other ones are like, "Oh, I'm the I've got the only ones in in the world." It looks like if you come down to reality on this, there it is. Even though somebody is trying to sell this, oh no! Here's an actual completed sale. Here's a completed sale for uh, north of thirty five hundred dollars. But again, this is some impossibly good condition which I could not compete with. I'm sure mine is a... You've read it. You put your you put your gummy little uh, um, Smarties-coated fingers on it. It's worse than that. My kids read it. Ugh. My kids loved those uh, Batman Adventures TV comics when they were little, and my some of them just disappeared into the bowels of my son's room and uh, never emerged. Well, this happened to me. I had a whole box of... Spider-Man comics from the 1970s mm. that I'd carried with me all these years. And when my daughter found them, I said to my mind self, are you really going to care about these Spider-Man comics? Or do you want your child to have all the fun? And what I learned is that my child is so much harder on books than I ever was. You know, I was taught by my mother oh, man. to be good to books. When I saw writing in a library book, I, it was like I had seen pornography. I was just shocked that anyone could have so little respect. I don't remember the age when someone told me how to treat a book because it was so young. And I think probably a switch was involved, like whoosh. Uh, but my kid just just churns 
books. And so she went through these Spider-Man comics and there's not a single one that has its cover on it anymore. They're all like more Smucker's jelly than, yeah. than paper now. And I was, I was pretty dismayed to see like the, the, uh, the way that, because there's no way for her to know that, well, and who knows if they had any value too late now. Now that I've just announced that I have a, some $3,000 comic in my garage. Your unsecured garage. Let me just add. give you my address. <laughs> <laughs> now, and, and, but that's, but that's not probably the only one that's worth money, right? There, there I don't know. might be some that are worth $50 or $20. Yeah, maybe. It's just shocking to me because I'm now old enough that this is just stuff I bought new in an era when I thought, you know, I had missed my chance at Fantastic Four number one yeah. or, or whatever comic could actually put you through college. So it's a little bit surprising to me now that some of this stuff is worth more than 75 cents. I was flipping through some old journals of mine from the late 80s and a $20 bill fell out of one that I'd apparently used as a bookmark. And it was from the 1963 series Ooh. of $20 bills. Does that... And is- I. Yeah, is there what, a secondary market? Yeah, you know, immediately went online. Yeah. And, you know, a series lasts for a long time. The 1963 series wasn't confined to 1963. But yeah, a perfect one has some premium put on it. But $20 and six cents. Yeah, what are you going to do? Put, put your old old $20 bill online. Who cares, you know, for to, to sell it for a dollar more? I mean, I guess that's how, that's how people get rich, Ken. And that's why I am consigned to a world of mediocrity. The real value of Harley Quinn is just the joy she brings to the lives of little girls everywhere when she hits Robin with a hammer. Yeah, that's right. And and a big sledgehammer. I don't think she, at least in the early days, was a strong female lead. I mean, she's strong and female. And there's actually some kind of, kind of commented on problematic stuff where she, um, she's a, Joker sidekick who has daddy issues, has daddy issues and needs to get pushed around by a psychopath. Yeah. She, yeah. But you know, even at the time, I think they knew that was, yeah, sure. That was something, that, something to comment upon cause she's damaged. That was part of the game. Yeah. I mean, definitely I've bought a uh, daddy's little monster t-shirts for at least three different people over the years with Harley Quinn's picture on them. No, it doesn't need to have Harley Quinn's picture on it. Everybody knows what it's a reference to. Does anybody call you Mr. J? Uh, Mr. J. No. I guess I guess Jennings starts with a J. Somebody could call me Mr. J. Uh, J-Rod is what they end up calling me. Puddin'? They do call me Puddin'. One, just, oh, yeah, one just don't call me late for Puddin'. <laughs> if, you don't, if you don't eat your meat, you can't have your Puddin'. Do you have, have you ever collected anything with the intention of getting a Fantastic Four number one or, you know, where you saw something and said, I mean, I guess your opportunity was Bitcoin, collect those. And uh, it turns out they're worth more than you thought. There's a real generational thing where people 20 years younger than me are just live in horror of the lost revenue they passed up by not getting into Bitcoin, right? Like people are, I think the average 25 year old is just haunted this yeah in a way that you and i were not about you know we would laugh about boy i should have bought apple stock yeah right. you know um but i think this is a, because maybe things look so hopeless otherwise yeah right they they're, they're, they're <laughs> that living, was my last chance living three people to a studio apartment that was and my if, last chance at auto ownership <laughs> if they just used their lawnmower money to buy four bitcoin no but i never had a um boy i'll just buy this and sock it away and i saw some of my friends doing it with um I guess mostly comic books. Like, yeah. in, do you remember that time in the early '90s when people were like, 
boy, this is the fancy one with the silver oh, yeah. cover. Oh, yeah. I'm just going to buy 10 of these and put them in my closet. And man, I'm going to be rich. I went to my, there was a comic store in the U District when I was at University of Washington. And I went there one day just to buy the new Sandman or, or whatever it was. And there was a line out the door in the rain because the death of Super, Superman had died. And everybody was sure that if they, and they were rationing them out one or two to a customer. And people just thought, well, if I have one of these, then then I'll be rich because, you know, you know, ironically, this is the highest selling comic of all time. If there's 10 million of something, it's not going to be a collectible rarity. Yeah, that's the problem. The the era of uh of like collectibles that were made as collectibles. As collectibles. Of course, they sold as many of them as they possibly could. And um uh, and they're not worth anything. Whereas there's probably something else that came that came out that same week, kind of under uh, appreciated, uh, under ordered. For some reason, now it's been recognized, and the death of Superman is valueless. Whereas this under the radar thing might be twenty bucks. Yeah, although um, you know, collectibles kind of come and go, and they are generational, like you say. I mean. Um, <laughs> right, nobody liked that Harley Quinn comic until she was anchoring box office tentpole movies in the 2010s. And I mean, your grandparents might collect some Franklin Mint stuff, whereas <laughs> does that come and go? Like your grandkids won't. Is the uh, Civil War chess set going to come back? Uh, yeah, I mean, if you think about uh, so many things, there are a lot of people in my world that. Um, that wish they'd bought a certain guitar because it yeah. was, I mean, I, I had, I had a guitar that I traded for another guitar. And the last time I was talking to the guitar store guy, he was like, Oh yeah, that, that guitar that you traded me for this other thing would be worth $15,000 now. And the guitar that I traded for it, which at the time they were, <laughs> you know, both worth $800, yeah. you know, it's not worth anything close to that. Um, but it's worth it to you. It's worth the joy you got out of it because to you, it was was not an investment instrument. You're absolutely right. The joy is what it was. Unless you got no joy out of it. I mean, I would have gotten just as much joy out of the other thing. I don't know what I was thinking, but collectibles in our lifetime, right? The things that people had collections of, uh, that were mass produced stamps, comic books, Coins. coins, Spoons, my great grandma with all her spoons of the world. Her spoons and shot glasses, although those were <laughs> those were more souvenirs rather than things you would invest in, right? Like Oh yeah, it's true. Nobody was thinking this is an investment instrument. And it was only, you know, it was only the boomers that made comic books collectible, but coins have always been. And comic books became collectible just because they were you know, manufactured to such shoddy quality and thrown out by so many moms that they were scarce by the time somebody wanted them. Right. You know, that's, that's the secret. Yeah, that's right. Make something, Make something really so badly. badly that it doesn't survive, that it just turns to yellow brittle acid. But the collector market, um, the collector market really experienced a, uh, a change in the early nineties. And partly it is due to the rise of the internet. I just realized this is almost exactly contemporary with my death of Superman story. This was this kind of investment fever was catching on in multiple collectability 
realms at once. Yeah, it was, and 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 partly a response to the fact that things like you say that had you know uh, uh, X Men number one was was suddenly worth money in 1990, and the idea that you could make uh, you know Batman the Dark Knight and put a put a special emblem on it and sell it for a lot more. This oh, is or, the one with the neon green ink. And all of the all of the Star Wars figurines of the late 70s, you know, the fact that there was a market for one where the lights a uh, Luke Skywalker's where the where the uh, lightsaber hadn't been bitten off by a child. Yeah, you you know, I immediately I could not open those fast enough. Yeah. And today you'll see a closed one in a store and you'll think, "Well, that was $300 I lit on fire the second I opened my uh my Hammerhead action figure." Do you you know the comic book store in the Pike Place Market that sells all that Golden stuff? Golden Age Collectible. It might be the oldest store in America of its kind. Do you remember going in there as a kid? Yeah, I went there you know, probably like in the late 80s. So I was maybe a teen. But I think that was the first place where I ever saw unopened Kenner Star Wars toys and thought, "Wow, I've ruined my life. That my ad would have been worth $5,000. I know. But if I if I only had the trash compactor playset that still had all the little foam garbage. Exactly. Yeah. When I think of all those little parts of the, jet, of the droid factory that were crawling around my house and it was just gone like tears and rain. That stuff, I at that age absolutely understood why, why you would want a Obi Wan Kenobi that still had his cape. The first time I remember seeing a collectible craze that seemed insane to me was the rise of the Beanie Baby in the early '90s. Do you remember your first experience with a Beanie Baby? Yeah, I um, I, I think I might have seen Pogs first. And it was more or less the same time, you know, those little cardboard tokens from like Hawaiian tropical juice that had been packaging for a long time. But then they were like, hey, if we put if we put pictures of the cast of Silver Spoons or Knight Rider on these, the sky's the limit. (laughs) Yeah, I do remember Pogs. And I remember, you know, it wasn't a culture I engaged in, but but I remember it. But I remember being bemused by it. Like, yeah. this is garbage that someone is trying to pass off as a collectible investment. And that is not true. Because you could tell they were garbage. They were just little cardboard discs. Yeah, there's always been in capitalism uh, an understanding that scarcity produces rarity. But it's hard to gin that up, right? I mean, you, it's hard to make people care about something that you're artificially making scarce. Um, Bitcoin is a great example of something where all that makes it valuable is its scarcity. It has no other, it has nothing intrinsic to it at all. I guess baseball cards are probably a lot of people's first exposure to, you're going to get this just because this is the the good, the one to get that appreciates. Yeah, bubblegum cards. I remember getting them with packets of that bubblegum that now I look back and go, you know, the gum was available in a lot of different formats. Uh, Big League Chew, of course, I, was new. I didn't need five <laughs> collectible great. cards from the movie Back to the Future 2 to come with my gum. No, and I guess I wasn't a big enough sports fan to care about a Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, original card. But when Beanie Babies arrived on the scene in the in the early what's, 90s... What's the time frame? Early 90s, huh? Well, Beanie Babies hit the market in... Uh, 1993, 
So it would have been pretty well dawn of the internet kind of era this is exactly the pog time frame what was in the yeah. water in 1993 to 1996 well let me uh let me set the wayback machine a couple of years before um our story starts with a man named ty warner and as you know beanie babies are produced by the ty toy company right. and um maybe you weren't aware that that was actually named after the founder, Ty Warner, who, in a baseball card connection, was named after Ty Cobb. Interesting. Yeah. He was uh, He did, was born in 1944. So, did, did the Ty company sell anything before Beanie Babies? That's where I first heard of them. No. Ty was a company that um, Ty himself was kind of uh, raised by a fairly affluent family. He actually grew up in a, in a Frank Lloyd Wright house. <laughs> but he had a contentious relationship with his parents. And... Um, and in the early 80s, he went to work. He, he, he went to Hollywood. He tried to be an actor. He, um, he bounced around. And in 1980, he went to work for the, the Dakin Toy Company, or Dakin. Uh, Dakin was a company that uh, they sold the Smurfs. They were, they were the first company to license the Smurfs. I see. They got the Smurf license in the U.S. Yeah. So they, sweet Belgian money. They made the little Smurf dolls, and then they did Sesame Street dolls. You know, they were, they were a successful toy company making, making figurines and dolls. And, uh, and Ty Warner went to work for them as a toy salesman and reputedly was great at selling toys. He had just a – he had a knack for – I don't know, convincing toy stores that, that these, uh, these figurines had more than just their sort of play playability. I wonder what makes for a good toy seller. Does he have a childlike sense of wonder belief in the product? Yeah. And maybe, maybe, uh, sure. If you, I mean, if you think about the Does movie, he think Big, Smurfs are real. He, well, Smurfs are real. Sorry. I meant he knows Smurfs. He knows Smurfs are real. Yeah. He's got the, he's got the quality of the kid in. Big, in big who says what's fun about that he actually got fired from the dakin toy company by uh for uh trying out some of his own toy designs in the course of traveling around selling toys he was like you know what you should try and he was he was he was making his own toys yeah. and trying to uh, interest his because he had loyal customers try and interest his loyal customers in some of these other toys and the dakin toy company was like can't do that, but um, but he kept working on his uh, his notions, and in 1986, his dad died and left him a little bit of money, and he took his life savings and his uh, bequest, and he started his own toy company, the Thai Toy Company, and was working on. This uh, this idea of a of a of a of a stuffed animal that wasn't overstuffed, right up until that point, all stuffed animals were. <laughs> That's what I hate about them. They were stuffed. Oh man, they were stuffed with stuff. Why do they all have to have so much stuffing? Yeah, and the stuff and and the stuffing makes them, I guess, squeezable, but not. People love overstuffed things. Nobody they, ever buys an understuffed chair. Well, in fact, well, maybe not an understuffed chair. Although a beanbag is by definition an understuffed chair. That's true. And maybe the beanbag was the primary, um, the primary influence, but he was making these 
his his innovation was what if animals were floppy? Yeah, put, fill them with beans instead of with stuffing, <laughs> and make them so that you could. This seems insane, John. You know fl- they were floppy. What if toys were hard instead of soft? <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> I'd love to cuddle that. But these toys were softer. They were more. They were more squeezable. Got it. Floppier and flippier and floppier. And his he he, he had kind of a. Uh, several innovations at once. And, uh, and one of them was a recognition that from the very beginning, scarcity was going to be part of his, part of the appeal of these animals. Um, he decided in his initial marketing that he was going to avoid selling his toys to big box toy stores. So what you would normally think of as as the business model you would pursue, which is try and get your new toy into Toys R Us and, uh, you know, get like big time distribution. He went the opposite direction. He was only going to sell his toys. And, and, and this probably demands that he be a guy or, you know, like it suggests that he was somebody that loved to be on the road because he only made his his little stuffed animals available in small toy stores, mm-hmm. gift shops, you know, places where he, w- he could go and make a connection with the buyer. And then he also made from the very beginning, limited runs of these animals and not limited runs that were connected to Valentine's day or limited runs that were like in, in January, there's one, and then there's a new one in the fall. It's arbitrary limited runs specifically to create scarcity of certain products. That's right. Um, By the way, look this up. Magic the Gathering, 1993. Another product that relies on kind of arbitrarily limited quantities to encourage multiple sales, you know, to, to people trying to get what they want. Right. Well, and so what's, so what's going on? So I'll uh, uh, let me walk you through this, and we will get to. Well, here let me let me walk you through it. So he's uh, he's traveling around. He's selling these beanie babies, and and it, they take a little while to catch on. Uh, but he's his initial his initial beanie babies. He had nine designs, uh, and they all had names. They were Legs the Frog, Squeaker the Pig, Spot the Dog, Flash the Dolphin, and Splash the Whale. They're friends. It gets a little... And then Platy the Platypus, which is fairly obvious. Platy. It's a little lazy. Pinchers the Lobster, which seems like... Is that really a name? Pinchers? And then here, Brownie the bear, which you kind of go, all right, Brownie the bear. And then chocolate, the moose. Which, Choc- that's actually a pun. Is it? Oh, chocolate moose. Oh, see, that went right past me because I don't like puns. Well, none of the others are an attempt at anything clever <laughs> that <laughs> they, I can see. They had, um, they had two tags on them. One of them was a tag that, that was like a, like a present label. It said to and from, and you could fill out, you know, you could you make it a gift to and from. And then there was another tag on the, on the butt that they called the tush tag. It's a little bit cabbage patch kidsy, right? It's a, it's as much of a, a friend or an adoption as it is a, as it is a purchase. 
And Cabbage Patch Kids were also a... It's like 10 years earlier. I yeah, think. and also kind of went through a collectible phase yeah. where they became a, all the rage. But that was much more a... Um, they're they're out of them at stores, right? It's a right? fad, yeah, and a run on the bank. But there wasn't a ton of like, this Cabbage Patch Kid is worth thousands of right. dollars. And that had been a thing for several... for. You know, for a long time, that uh, uh, there'd be a fad toy and stores hard, would hard run out find, of them, yeah. right? And and probably that that the night before Christmas, there were dads paying twice market rate to try and get a Cabbage Patch Kid. But what made Beanie Babies take off? Um, Ty Warner had an employee by the name of Lena Trevetti, and she was a young person, and suggested that. Beanie Babies have a website. 1995. Oh, that's very early. The internet was kind of just a twinkle in everybody's eye, as we've talked the about World before. The World Wide Web was aborning in 1995. And Lena was, uh, you know, was young and, and forward-looking and put up a, a, a Ty Warner or a, a, a Ty Toys website selling Beanie Babies. And Beanie Babies then, on their little tush tag, had a had the the URL, and this was it. Kind of makes them seem futuristic, which I wouldn't have thought about Beanie Babies that way. This, this is like the next thing in toys. This may come as a shock to you, but Beanie Babies were the first business to consumer website. <laughs> The, for, there was a time when the only thing you could buy on the internet was Beanie Babies. Beanie Babies w- are the first thing. The web was created to sell Beanie Babies and nothing else. And at this time, 1995, you know, the fraction of people on the on the web was tiny. And so you would buy the you'd buy a Beanie Baby in a gift shop somewhere, you know, on your way to the hospital or Valentine's Day. What are these letters, Doris? And the Beanie Baby itself would say, go online and connect with the character, you know, connect with Legs the Frog's backstory. So there'd be, there'd be lore and adventures and stuff. It wasn't just like a, a user base of a message board. Well, and Lena was, was kind of one of the motivating forces. Lena was the first one to write little poems. Um, in 1996, the the uh, bears started having little, little kind of identifying poems, little characteristic poems, individual poems on their little tags. And the first hundred or more, um, 136, I guess, poems were all written by Lena Trevetti. Uh, so she was this buzz marketer, like maybe, uh, the first internet buzz marketer. Well, she invented the metaverse. She did. You bought Legs the Frog, but you also own digital Legs the Frog uh, and the adventures he can have online. Well, and then in 1997, uh, Princess Diana died. And Beanie Babies, which had already become a kind of... Um, because they were made in such limited quantities, there, there, there was kind of baked into it a, a a demand for 
the bear that you saw when you went in the store and you forgot to buy and then you came back and they didn't have that bear anymore. There was a different bear. You wanted the earlier bear. I asked if they were going to have the earlier bear and he said they didn't know. And this was the this was the very dawn of the internet. You're going online and initially trying to find, you know, you go on a on a uh, a message board or a I don't know, whatever there were. We've talked about this so much, what the you internet were, was like were in 1995. On, you were on alt.toy.beanie <laughs> right. saying, does anybody have a spare Brownie the Bear? Brownie the Bear or Chocolate the Moose? I can't find him anymore. But when Diana, Princess Diana died, a commemorative Princess Bear was released in, in 1997. And the popularity of the Princess Bear and the little tag saying, go to our website, I'm not going to say that Beanie Babies are Princess Diana's fault. No, or that, <laughs> uh, or that they popularized the internet exactly, but it was a perfect storm. And by 1997, you know, by halfway through 1997, there was an explosion of secondary market trading of Beanie Babies. Such that a magazine was published, uh, Mary Beth's Beanbag World. <laughs> Mary Beth's Beanbag World did not previously exist covering other beanbag-related pursuits? Nope, this was the first one. And the first issue sold 177,000 copies. The second issue sold 444,000 copies. So this is the kind of thing where beyond the people who were already into floppy stuffed animals, now there's a speculator market. There's a speculator market to the degree that um, in the late 90s, at the, at the dawn of eBay, when did eBay start? Yeah, I don't know. It was earlier. We looked this up before, and it was earlier than we thought. But I feel like it wasn't a cultural force till the late 90s. Uh, eBay started in 1995. Right. At the, uh, by the late 90s, fully 10% of all sales on eBay were Beanie Babies. Wow. It's propping up whole currencies. <laughs> so they, so Beanie Baby trading, uh, yeah, was, an, was its own economy that exceeded the economy of uh, 40% of the nations on earth. <laughs> no, that's, I made that part up. Uh, and so, and Ty Warner the whole time, very conscious of, of maintaining the scarcity, the, some of these beanie babies were issued only in the, you know, the hundreds. And he, he understood that the secondary market and the craze actually helped him. You know, he didn't do the He's getting free publicity. Yeah. He didn't do the thing where he, where he tried to squash. He definitely was lit, litigious about fake beanie babies mm -hmm. of which there were many, but he kind of encouraged this, this, crazy off-the-wall uh, secondary market. And Beanie Babies became, like some of the Beanie Babies became ridiculously expensive. Now this is, this is something that we, th there was so much conversation around how crazy the prices of Beanie Babies were that the, that the hyperbole of the reporting on it became somewhat unreliable and partly it is that it's, it's just hard to. Yeah. It's not like Sotheby's has numbers. So. Right. It's, it's hard. It, it, people, 
people put Beanie Babies up online for five hundred thousand uh, dollars, and a report, you know, a, a magazine article would be written that said Beanie Babies are worth five hundred thousand dollars. Well, they no, didn't sell for five hundred thousand dollars, but then people used that as rationale to invest in Beanie Babies. Now, the first time I encountered that as a level of uh, craziness, or uh, I guess we don't use craziness. Um, Mental illness. Insanitude. I used to go to estate sales, mm-hmm. and I was just looking for, you know, broadswords and... Um, grandpa suspenders. Yeah, grandpa suspenders. Somebody's old World War II uniform or maybe a, a Fender Tweed amplifier. And I went to this estate sale that had all that stuff. It had the old man's record player. It had, you know, a collection of, um, of baubles from the South Pacific. And then a full room of their house had floor to ceiling shelves on all the walls and then floor to ceiling shelves in the middle of the room so that you walked through it like a library and it was all beanie babies top to bottom. You don't have a beanie baby room in your house. I don't. I have a, a Russian nesting doll room. <laughs> I'm just buying the knockoff pellet pals. I think they're going to catch on. And I've never seen anything like that many Beanie Babies in a, in a space. And this was in the, we were already, I guess, in the 2000s by this point. And the people running the sale, and a lot of them were in plastic bags. So they weren't clearly there to be so played with. They couldn't breathe. And walking around the house, it was just a normal house that uh, that an older couple couple lived in until they both died. Uh, it wasn't like the they didn't love them, they didn't cuddle them. No, it was it was Again, entirely they're, they're uncuddleable beanbags. The weirdest feeling thing <laughs> known to man. They definitely, I'm, you can see that the older couple looked at them as an investment, and and but here we were, they had both died, and now this. Uh, this estate sale company was trying to make sense of, well, maybe they were like, this is for the grandkids. This is the grandkids legacy. Yeah. And they're all going to get Rudy the reindeer, but they were kind of being sold, um, in bulk, you know, had had the, was the bloom already blush already off the beanie baby rose at this point? Well, I don't know the timeline for that either. I'll address that. Thusly, um, by 1999, the Thai toy company was making $700 million a year in profit. <laughs> uh, Ty Warner surfed the Beanie Baby craze because Ty, you know, Ty ventured out into other toys. Um, but, and, and, you know, so that the company stayed afloat even after the Beanie Baby crash, but they can. And he actually, in 1999, said uh, Beanie Babies are going to go out of production. And they actually issued a bear called End Bear. <laughs> death bear. Which was the last bear. The heat death of the universe bear. And I, I don't know whether he expected that his, he, that his warehouse of old rare Beanie Babies, he kept one of each, and that was going to sustain him for the rest of his life. <laughs> but there was such an outcry that he then, uh, type Toys issued a kind of uh, a, an appeal to the, to the customers, would you like us to continue making Beanie Babies? And overwhelmingly, apparently the, the market said yes. And so they started making Beanie Babies again. That seems like a stunt. Yeah. A little bit of a stunt, 
They make them to this day. Mary Beth's Beanbag World continued to be published into 2001. Ty Warner took his money and invested in real estate. Smart. As part of that, he ended up buying the Four Seasons Hotel in New York City (laughs) and owns it to this day. The um, hotel that Beanie Babies built. He's known as the 360th richest man in the world, even still. He's only 77. Wow. He's worth two and a half billion dollars. Um, but yes, the bottom fell out but of the, the Beanie Baby market to a degree. To a degree. To a degree. If you think about- Is this going to be like the Pokemon Go show where it turns out it's actually super still power, popular and we just don't know? Well, let me let me show you. I mean, you you- you remember um, the picture, the kind of desperate picture from this time, 1999, of the young married couple in a uh, in a Las Vegas courtroom. I was hoping we'd get to them. That's, with, that's like my sole cultural memory of Beanie Babies is those that two the couple fighting over their custody of their Beanie Baby collection. Yeah, this is a um, this is the story of Francis and Harold Mountain, who were pretty young. And um, and getting divorced in Las Vegas, and their divorce was finalized, but they couldn't. They were ordered by the court to divide their beanie babies, and they couldn't. The two could not agree. They bickered until it became until Harold Mountain threatened to file suit against Francis Mountain for his half of the Beanie Babies. And a family court judge by the name of Gerald Hardcastle, which is who you want. Hardcastle and Mountain. Made them come into court and um, and throw all the Beanie Babies on the floor. And roll around in them. And, oh, they weren't allowed to roll around he in them. He should have done the thing that King Solomon did. Oh, he he should have been like, okay, we're going to cut each of your Beanie Babies in half. And to see which which of them said, no, no, the, the, the beans will fall out. Well, it turns out that Maple the Bear was the one, was, you know, it was kind of like That's a prize, kind of like an NFL draft. Maple the Bear was the first to get grabbed. <laughs> uh, Francis Mountain said, I don't agree with your decision, Judge. It's ridiculous and embarrassing. That's what you but, want to say in court. But then she crouched down and. But, but I will draft. She, she <laughs> Maple the Bear. She and her husband sat and, you know, and, and I mean, that was just 1999. They're still out there, these two, Francis Mountain, or she probably isn't known as Francis Mountain anymore. Hopefully dating other people. Maybe they found happiness. Maybe they did. And who knows whether these Beanie Babies, um, at the time, their collection, they valued between $2,500 and $5,000. So it was not like Maple the Bear was worth fifty grand. It wasn't like your estate sale with a room full of... Room full of them, right? Or yeah, sure. Uh, well, no. I mean, it was quite, it was quite a few of them. It's such an embarrassing picture. I encourage uh, futurelings not to go look at it because it really makes you ashamed. If you try to figure out how much beanie ba- beanie babies are worth now, um, there is a lot of misinformation. But you can go on eBay as you just did to see whether your Harley Quinn. Uh, comic book is worth money what they've actually sold for what they've actually sold for and in maple the bear on september 29th of this year gobbles the turkey <laughs> sold for $24,000 on ebay 
Did you say $24,000? $24,000. That's more than I would have paid for Cobblestone. I, I was out of that auction at $18,000, i will tell you that. Just a few weeks ago, Halo the Bear sold for $23,000. Um, a, a Princess Diana Bear sold around Thanksgiving for $20,000. So there is... There is still a secondary market. There's still a collector's market for these. There's an, there's a, there is like a large market, and if you had a room full of Beanie Babies and sold them in 2001 at an estate sale, you might be kicking yourself now to realize that there's still, there's still a huge market for them. And, and there are some listed for a half a million dollars online, but they don't seem to sell for more than about 25000 which seems... Nuts! It looks like Maple the Bear had some rare errors. It's okay, like, so this is the like other thing. It's like a postage stamp with the upside-down airplane. It's an upside-down airplane thing. That's right. A lot of these top-selling bears have uh, printing errors on their tushy tags. They have uh, sort of unique coloration or mistakes. So great to make your shoddy manufacturing a... Uh, like a, a selling point? Yeah. yeah. I would not buy a maple the bear, no matter how crooked the tag printing was. What if it had the letter R upside down? I've, I've never. Is it a Russian bear? <laughs> no. I've never liked the uh, the feel of bean bags. Didn't like them when I had to toss them in cornhole. Didn't like them when I had to. I refuse to acknowledge that that's sit on the name them of that game. Seems unlikely, doesn't it? I had a cornhole. We always called it beanbag baseball. What I was wrong with that? I don't have sensory reactions to anything except for pretty much bean bags. I don't want to hold them at all. It's maybe it's an evolutionary thing that nature has done to keep me safe from silly '90s collectibles. You know the Thai company. So Ty Warner ended up. He's both a. He's actually a philanthropist. He's given away millions and millions of dollars to uh, to good causes, but like a lot of super rich billionaire philanthropists, he's also a tax cheat, and <laughs> at one point was reputed to have one of the largest offshore uh, tax shelter accounts that the, that the IRS had ever found. Um, he's a super duper recluse kind of, uh, he, uh, he owns all these resorts, you know, in Hawaii and, and whatnot, but, but nobody knows anything about him. He's not like a, he's Howard Hughes. He's not, he's a little Howard Hughes. He's, sit yeah. he's sitting in his room petting ice station, the zebra. The Thai company came out, uh, the Thai company went head to head with the makers of Bratz dolls. I remember Bratz. Uh, with, uh, Thai girls with a Z, which were similarly, I mean, they were, they were bean oriented dolls. Bratz were not. Bratz were hard plus. Right. But Thai girls also had the strange, like, it's a little girl, except she's got a lot of eye makeup on and very right. skimpy clothes. Um, and they got in trouble for uh, a line of Thai girls that were named after the Obama daughters. They, oh, this was as late as then. Yeah, they they put these out in uh, in <laughs> uh, in two thousand and nine. They were called the Sasha and Malia dolls. The president's children are are pub pass into the public domain the second he's inaugurated. Well, unfortunately, well. In counter to that, um, <laughs> um, uh, Mrs. Obama protested pretty vocally, and um, and Ty ended up kind of pushing back at first, uh, as Michelle Obama said, 
I would prefer you not sell Bratz dolls. Sell Bratz dolls named after my kids. <laughs> Ty was like, oh, we just happened upon those names. Eventually, they recalled the uh, the Obama daughter dolls and reissued them with other names. But um, but so, then Celia and Masha. Yeah, then those dolls, uh, the recalled dolls, ended up being an eBay. Sure. Thing themselves. That, I'm sure he loved the idea of some artificial <laughs> scarcity. That are worth a couple of thousand dollars now. I have a theory, I guess, about the early 90s. Because this is happening a little before the internet can appear. And, you know, you could say technology is juicing all this. You feel like the 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 Wizards of the Coasts and the Thai Toys? They're tapping into something else. And I wonder if it is... The boomers hitting the age where they're trying to recapture, the baby boomers is hitting the age where they're trying to rebuy the stuff of their childhood. You know, because that is a thing that happens for yeah. um, nostalgic people of a certain age. They try to find the Buck Rogers lunchbox that their mom threw away or, you know, whatever the thing is. I'm trying to find the 1968 Les Paul that I could have bought in 1985 for $700. You're trying to find <laughs> Roger Stern Spider-Man comics without um, peanut butter on the right. in the indicia. So um, so the boomers are are motivating it but it's all new stuff. It's all new stuff but but um but this is Gen X seeing maybe their parents buying up you know Howdy Doody and Mickey Mouse Club stuff, and seeing boy, look at the price on some of this Disney stuff. Let's get ahead of you this. You would have thought this was junk. We're gonna stockpile these boxed Boba Fett's. Yeah, and and maybe they've and maybe they're realizing for the first time that their own childhood stuff. You know, enough time has gone by that, like me, they're starting to see their childhood stuff boxed up and marked up in collector stores, and and that starts to catch on. Well, if you if you think about that, uh, if think about it in that way, we are the first generation, Generation X, that was already already nostalgic for our childhoods while we were still children. <laughs> That's like true. nostalgia was, we were so soaked in it that we were already kind of. I mean, we we were brought up to mythologize the generations before us in a way that made us even even during the grunge years think about like. Oh man, I got to keep all these old T-shirts because because of our our Beatles venerating elders and parents, right? right? Yeah. So, so these mud honey T-shirts are going to be worth something someday. And uh, we were right, sort of. My mud honey T-shirts aren't worth that much. <laughs> they pull the bear is still twenty five thousand dollars on eBay though. Yeah, but how much is mud honey the bear? <laughs> were there grunge related? Uh... Were there grunge-related Beanie Babies? There was a Beanie Baby that had a peace sign and a tie-dye shirt. So, no, they were Boomer. Where's the flannel? The Boomer Babies. Man, see, that was their mistake. They should have had... Uh, like Flannel the Frog? Kurt the Caribou wearing a woman's cardigan. <laughs> and that concludes Beanie Babies. Entry 106.PR2105. Certificate number 47159. In the Omnibus. Futurelings, please send us all your stories of 80s collect- 90s collectibles and the objects themselves. And we want to hear your theories about why uh, these super collectibles were collectible. And I'm sure somebody's going to send us a theory where we're like, oh, of course, that's why. I wonder if it's going to be sports card based. And I'm just not into the cycles of the sports card market of the 80s. Like, is it all going to come out of 
1980s NBA culture or something. Yeah, I right. Know. I mean, like Air Jordan sneakers, but the same thing. Same thing. Like sneaker culture yeah. took a while to um, to become the the insanity that it is now. Future um, omnibus episode sneaker culture. Look us up at Ken Jennings at John Roderick at the Omnibus Project. Email us at theomnibusproject at gmail Send us your rare Happy Meal Beanie Baby errors to PO Box five five seven four four Shoreline Washington. 98155. Do not break into my garage trying to steal Harley Quinn's first appearance. I definitely, when I see them in thrift stores, I buy those old, you know, McDonald's themed or um, deputy dog themed drinking glasses that they used to give away. You've got a lot of pretty good partial sets of those. I do. Yeah. I've got, I've, I've even got a Smurf one, the, the Smurf one where, uh, where a bunch of Smurfs are playing like guitars and drums and Grumpy Smurf is like, I hate music. I couldn't resist that one. He's so grunge. I've got a couple of, uh, of drinking glasses from Sambo's. Well, you which, can't keep those. <laughs> they're hard. I mean, they're, I don't, they're not in circulation. My grandparents ha- had a, a Looney Tunes set yeah. in their kitchen as a kid. And I was like, this is the coolest thing you can drink out of them. And they have Sylvester and Tweety on them. I have Wiley e. Coyote. And I think I have, I think I have Tweety Bird. You can see why the completest impulse starts to kick in. You know, yeah. you, you get one sentimentally or authentically or by chance, and then you're like, "But well, the other five I'm not interested in, but I, yeah, I must have them all." I definitely resist the completest urge by, in by kind of forcing myself to use all that stuff, like my Tweety Bird glass is in daily circulation. It goes in the dishwasher. Sure. And I'm not going to be somebody that puts all that stuff up on a shelf. I think it's good to leave one out of your collection yeah. on purpose just to show respect to Allah. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Know? Like only Allah could make a perfect collection of Looney Tunes gas station glasses. When I get a whole set, I always break one <laughs> for my dead homies. <laughs> uh, you could support uh, John's... Uh, Super healthy. Glass collection. <laughs> By donating to the Patreon. Uh, if you like Omnibus, you can support us at patreon.com slash Omnibus Project. Discuss weird 90s collectibles with your fellow futurelings by looking up their groups on Facebook or Discord or Reddit. And uh, most importantly, um, throw out your parents' beanie babies. Hmm. Go into your parents' house right now. Box them up. Send them to us. Or destroy them. No, 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 no. Send them to us. It'll we'll, drive up the value of ours. We'll, so, we'll is, sort through this them. This is the Goldfinger plot. <laughs> How come there was never a James Bond movie built around uh, Beanie Babies as an asset? Some Central Asian billionaire trying to corner the market on... I mean, there's that one about copper in Bolivia. Why is there not one about Beanie Babies in, in Branson, Missouri? Well, you know, there's a whole new set of James Bond movies about to come out. They might not even be James Bond. Right. They might be, they could be like some Malia Bond. young, hip James Bond Jr. And uh, maybe Beanie Babies are going to be a plot point. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omni.